So hello and a very warm welcome to this very special episode of the Menopod to Mark International Women's Day. I'm Susan Lee and I'm joined as ever by my mate and fellow journalist Don Collinson to chat about every aspect of the menopause or what we like to call puberty's evil older sister. We do so. Absolutely. With us uh, later on today is Dr. Paula Briggs. She is chair of the British Menopause Society and a consultant in sexual and reproductive health. All of which means that she knows her onions when it comes to menopause and perimenopause. And we'll be answering some of your most pressing questions about this critical stage in a woman's life a little bit later on. So we are about to embark on series three of the Menopod. If you haven't heard our earlier episodes, where have you been? Uh, and Dr. Paula was one of our original guests way back at the start of series one, when I guess the menopause have yet to go mainstream. And I'll be honest, I'm going to be ever so slightly controversial here and ask Dawn, do you think there is now almost too much information out there? Have we kind of moved from a place when we first started, for instance, you know, three or four years ago, when we were struggling to find information? And now there's kind of a blizzard of information. I mean, don't know where to look. What do you think? Yeah. I honestly think there is. And I know that you, we kind of think, well, you know, there's no such no such bad thing as getting it all out there and we're all very much more open, which is massive plus, massive plus, I think, to where we were. But on the other hand, I do sometimes feel like it's everywhere. And everywhere you look, I just turn the telly and, oh, there's someone else talking about their menopause. And it was, and it feels a little bit, it feels a little bit too much, mainly because I think it's really hard to distinguish what's good and what's bad and what's valid and what's and what's just essentially a little bit of profiteering sometimes it feels a little bit like everyone's thought now here's a bandwagon we're, we're jumping on that and I feel like saying that's our bandwagon get off it <laughs> <laughs> well I had a really good expression the other day and it's called the menopause gold rush and I thought that's really interesting. I've not I've not heard that before. But when we first started to talk about this, the menopause was it was kind of things were getting better, things were improving. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. But goodness me, three or four years on, it's literally everywhere. And you're quite right, in one way, isn't that great? But then in another, I've met women who just don't know from from not knowing where to look, there's too much to look at. Do you know what I mean? And they don't know what's a trusted source. And what isn't a trusted source and what's just kind of, I don't know, people, um, I hesitate to jump jump on a bandwagon. Let's be honest, jumping on a bandwagon from for all aspects, from, you know, from, I don't know, specialist underwear to I don't, whatever, to, to medical treatments. Um, and I do, it, it's it's just a different, a different place to when we started three or four years ago, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know when you go to a Chinese restaurant sometimes, and it tends to be Chinese restaurants because they've got masses and masses of dishes. And you get the menu and you just think, um, I wish now that you'd just given me 12 mains to choose from instead of 72. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like I want somebody to just give me 12 options or 12 pieces of advice, not 112 pieces of advice, because then I'm just boggled with it all. And then I'm more likely to go, oh, I can't be bothered looking because there's too much. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so I wish it would just all be kind of pared down to the good stuff that we could go, okay, well, we'll we'll look at the good stuff and we'll take the bits that we think are relevant to us. So if we've got a, a somebody else said to me the other day, it's like playing whack-a-mole with symptoms because you're kind of like, oh, I've got that one sorted. Oh, I've got another one. 
and I just think if there were if there was like a sort of set amount of suggestions that you could go well that one suits me and that one suits me it would be so much easier than this just dizzying array of it wouldn't it do you think social media plays a part in that because Absolutely. four years ago I'd never heard of TikTok I just hadn't heard of TikTok and no. I wasn't particularly on Instagram and I've kind of heard of Facebook well now social media is huge and growing and 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 it's everywhere isn't it and I wonder how much that kind of plays a part in you see people talking about it all the time on different social platforms and you think oh well oh well she thinks that oh but then again she thinks that oh but they say that oh but I read that the other day and it's just yeah really hard to navigate and and we're journalists you know what I mean and we're used to navigating stories and finding out information and I find it really hard it is but I think then cynically you've got to remember that social media has also become everyone's go-to marketing tool so whereas you know you said so much things has changed well what's changed most I think is is digital media so okay we we used to use four years ago yeah we were all on Instagram we were all on Facebook we did not TikTok because we were probably gone oh TikTok's for the kids Um, Uh, I'm on TikTok come on get down with the kids yeah but you know what we were on those things but I don't think they were quite so intensively used as a marketing tool and now I think when you speak to marketeers actually social media is almost their number one priority now and so again I think we're bombarded with stuff like for that reason yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it how how just radically different things are Paula we need to ask you (laughs) well I was just going to say somebody who knows better than ever well better than any of us is Mrs No Fair Onions Paula Briggs who knows better than most about how hard women still find it to talk about perimenopause and menopause and how hard it is sometimes to get the right information. So Dr Paula, you're a consultant at Liverpool Women's NHS Trust doing menopause and vulval clinics and general gynae stuff with a specialisation in hormones. How do you think have changed, things have changed then? Because you, as I say, you were one of our very first guests three, four years ago now. Um, in the before times. The pandemic kind of has caused its own issues, hasn't it? I mean, I think um, women are very vulnerable. This is a difficult life stage for for many women, but there are also things that we didn't have before. There's a lot of anxiety, genuine anxiety. And I think um, it's great to have information, but social media is unregulated. So you've already touched on that. And some of the information that women are seeing, um, and obviously I see that too, is making them frightened of menopause. They're worried um, they're going to develop osteoporosis. Their husband is going to leave them. They're going to lose their job. We're seeing much younger women coming forward asking for hormone replacement therapy, although they're not menopausal. And it's it's almost like they want to get in there before it happens. And the counter to that is women who probably have missed the boat in terms of additional benefits looking for HRT in their 70s because they're really worried about dementia and I think the best advice here in this podcast is to direct women to reputable resources NHS resources we got NHS England producing something called the optimal pathway which will help non-specialists support women We've got Women's Health Concern, which is the patient-facing arm of the British Menopause Society, Menopause Matters. So there are some well-established, valuable resources out there. But as a a 
woman and a, a non-specialist, it must be really, really hard to know where to go. I mean, we were saying, Sue and I were saying, you know, one of the things around, one of the biggest issues around menopause is the fact that a lot of women won't necessarily go and see their GP about it because maybe they think, oh, it's not worth an appointment. I'll just, you know, everyone, all women of my age are going through it. And so unlike a lot of other symptoms or ailments or things that you have, women just think, well, every woman of a certain age will get this. It's not worth me going to see the GP. And then that means that they then will try and self-medicate or look for self-help options. They'll go onto the Internet and that then kind of exposes you to a world of influencers. And not that all the advice is bad necessarily, but it isn't always from reputable sources, like you said, the NHS and also, you know, maybe pharmacists and things like that. Is it is it just that? You know, do you tend to get people coming to you and and saying, oh, I've seen such and such? So it, it may be if, for instance, someone's on TV and they're talking about a particular treatment or they're, like you says, on TikTok talking about a particular thing. Do you see a spike then in the number of people coming to you and saying, I'd like to try that or, you know, and is and as a result of that, is is the exposure to the information just making things more complicated for women? Well, I think so. I think I would describe menopause as a mess at the moment. And, you know, I think we were in a really comfortable place just after the NICE guidance was published in 2015. And that's currently being re- reviewed. But I, I would describe things as reasonably unstable at the moment. Just as you said, women are seeing things on social media, for example, and coming with a very specific request. And HRT is suitable for most women. But which particular product that woman has should depend on a conversation with it could be the GP, the practice nurse or the pharmacist and a bit like you say about being overwhelmed in a Chinese restaurant it's very much like that so we don't tell women what they should have there's not one size fits all and it's really part of a conversation about how how the particular woman might like um to be treated and it doesn't have to be hrt it might be cognitive behavioral therapy it may be cold water swimming and you know i think all of that's being lost with transdermal estrogen micronized progesterone and testosterone so you know that's one formula um but it's not for everyone and there are some very, very good oral HRTs if that's what the patient wants to take or the woman wants to take. But now women, I think, if you offer an oral treatment, will say, oh, I don't want that. That's not what everyone's saying is the best HRT. Yet, you know, there are some real benefits with oral HRT. It's good for things like insulin resistance, which um, can um cause women to become diabetic we know that 25 percent of women have high blood pressure by 50 uh, or 50 percent have high blood pressure by 50 and 25 percent are diabetic by 60 so the menopause consultation i would view as a midlife mot and a lot of that will be lost if we just throw hormones at women i'm not anti-hormone at all i'm very pro balance and and giving patients choices and making them part of that decision process but if somebody's already influenced when they arrive that's a much more difficult thing to do so playing devil's advocate slightly is it not a good thing that so many people are talking about menopause perimenopause even if it is you know celebrities or whatever is is that not better than nobody talking about it or are we at risk of almost knowing too much or thinking we know too much when actually we don't yeah so i i think we should focus on 
the reproductive life cycle and it's important to talk about other things like heavy periods being a very common presenting symptom in the perimenopause. That's not really getting much coverage. Um, and many women will get urogenital atrophy, which devastates their sex life. That's also not getting much coverage. Um, everybody wants testosterone all of a sudden, but the reality is that testosterone, although it can help women with low libido, is is a you know low libido is a very complex biopsychosocial problem and just throwing testosterone at it is not necessarily the right thing the other thing which i think is a worry is women are using very high doses outside of product license and then my concern is that if they use excessive amounts of testosterone could we find ourselves in a situation where there are irreversible changes voice changes hair changes and perhaps cardiac changes that everyone is missing when they're only talking about potential benefits. But the benefits are associated with physiological levels, not excessive dosing. Okay, I'm being really thick here. If you're prescribed testosterone, isn't that on prescription? Don't you get told exactly how much to take? Well, the problem in the NHS is there's no product which is licensed for use in women so we use male products outside of their license we have to document that we have to make sure the patient's aware of that but the leaflet is for men so in the course of a consultation where you have a woman presenting with a very set idea about what she needs she might miss some of that information even although it'll be on the prescription and it should be transferred to a sticker on the on the product I have seen women who've got that wrong and instead of using a third of the male dose, for example, with a product like Tostran, which is something we use commonly, they're using more than a man would use. So until such time as there's a licensed product for women, I feel um, supportive of GPs not prescribing testosterone. And that's kind of developed over the last few years because I wouldn't like to see them being asked to do something they don't feel they've had the appropriate training for, but also... Um, because of anxiety about excessive dosing. And people are, I think, seeing um, information or being told even by clinicians that they can increase the amount of estrogen that they use. What they're not then maybe realising is the more estrogen you use, the more likely you are to get bleeding. And if you have abnormal bleeding, then you have to be investigated. And these investigations are not nice. Well, you know what? We, we put a shout out um, to say that we had you as our guest. Um, and said and basically asked women if they had access to an expert that's you Paula what would be the one thing one big question that they wanted to ask unsurprisingly we were absolutely inundated by people asking things and I've kind of tried to slim them down into themes but apologies if you if you have got in touch and have a question I'm so sorry if we can't get to you but we're going to do our best to get through as many as we can in the next sort of 10-15 minutes the big one the big one was HRT. We've touched on it before. Three little letters, one huge topic. Um, we had lots of questions about it. Predominantly, it was women saying, what are the risks? What are the risks? How do I find out more? You know, my mate's on it, my other mate's not on it. I don't know what to do. What? What's your advice? 
my advice is that if you're otherwise healthy, sort of no issues, you're not overweight, you don't smoke, there's no family history of, say, cancer, breast cancer particularly, then the benefits the benefits associated with HRT outweigh the risks. And in general, for women below the age of 60, that's the situation. It's more complicated, I think, for women who are struggling with their weight or who have high blood pressure, who might be smoking or drinking too much. I think that needs much more intense um input from whichever clinician you happen to see because just using estrogen or a progestogen as well if you need to protect the lining of your womb isn't going to change all of those things sometimes it's a case of taking an antihypertensive having some intense input from a dietitian, and it's nothing complicated it is about reducing portion sizes and making sure that there is a good balance um, of carbohydrate, protein and fats and fats are important and that that would be combined with manageable exercise. You know, I think it's really difficult for women if they come from a from a place where they haven't been able to exercise for whatever reason to suddenly um, feel that they should be under pressure uh, to go to the gym. And I also think with diet, we need to be very careful. We need to ask women if they want help um, with diet. But I do feel it's a really important package and um, you know, if there are significant risks, then yes, there can be problems with HRT. And for those women who have had a hormone dependent cancer, then HRT might not be appropriate. And that information isn't always what women are seeing. Um, some women who've had breast cancer want to have HRT. Now, I can understand why they might want to have HRT, but that's a really complex decision. And others who've had breast cancer wouldn't touch it with a barge pole because they're worried about um, taking something that could um, increase the risk of a further breast cancer. Just before I move on, the commonest complication with HRT is DVT. That's blood clots in the leg, which can travel to the lung. And you don't get that, an increase in risk with anything that's delivered through the skin, which is why I think we've seen that tidal change to patches, gels, sprays. Um, but if women haven't got risk factors, then oral might be the better route. And there's no issue with availability with oral preparations. So all of the shortages, which I think are definitely linked to increased use, tend to be um, with transdermal products um, and micronized progesterone. Oh, that's interesting because we read a lot about shortages and it was quite, I know a lot of people were quite wound up about it and thinking, oh my goodness, you know what, I'm not going to get be able to get my hands on my medication. Is that, has that gone away a little bit now? Is that not as bad as it was? It, it's not the same as it was. It's much more intermittent and patchy and related to quite specific products, like I said. And I think the problem is if, you, if you've struggled and you've found something that works, then you don't necessarily want to have to start all over again. Um, other things which are happening, which are illogical, are you know, patients being told they can have um, a tablet, gel and a patch. I wouldn't ever do that. And I think we just need to be careful because if something goes wrong, for example, the patient presents with abnormal bleeding and it's hyperplasia, which is excess thickening, a risk factor for cancer. What was the cause of that? Was it because she was overweight and nobody had talked about that? Was it because she was using too high a dose of estrogen or, you know, were there other factors in that patient's history which increased her risk and you wouldn't have wanted to increase it any further by using excess doses of estrogen? I mean, we talked before about women sometimes being reluctant to go and see the GPs, but I think I've got a couple of questions here which are kind of tied together. And that's about people who have obviously been to their GP and maybe not have the response that they'd hoped for. So Liz says, 
Um, why do some GPs seem to have such a problem listening to women when they tell their GP what's going on with their body? How can we convince our GPs to listen to us and take us seriously? And then also tied to that, we've got one from a lady called Hannah who says, who's, so she's been having many symptoms which have seen different doctors about on different occasions, um, but not one of them have tied these together and come up with the same solution or the same answer, which is perimenopause. Why is it still not being sort of widely trained amongst GPs so that they are perhaps more? And it, I know it's difficult and we don't want to criticise GPs because obviously the nature of GPs are its general practice. So it's not their specialism. Is there a possibility that there is some more training needed in spotting the symptoms of perimenopause, menopause? amongst women so that when women do go to their GP they do come away feeling like they've you know got a bit of help or a bit of support yeah so you know I think it depends where you are I can speak for Liverpool I think we are um, working really closely with primary care I think um, GPs need mentorship support it's a very hard job most most of them are trying very hard so we've got 15 doctors coming into clinics with us um, we have a, a Zoom session on a Monday where they can come with cases and it's not one answer to each case. There might be, I don't know, five to ten different ways of managing an individual patient. So that kind of communication is is really, really important. Um, and I think that that history, Hannah's history, where you know she's obviously had lots of different symptoms, been to lots of different specialists who were specialists in their own area. So that might be cardiology, she might have had palpitations. She might have seen, I don't know, you know, anxiety. You might end up at a psychiatrist. Who knows? You could go to lots of different places, but the optimal pathway is to tie all that together. So there is lots and lots of work going on in the background. It's not that nothing's happening. And, it, you know, I don't believe you can mandate training. I don't think that's um, right. And I don't think it supports adult learning. Learning, So it has to be that we enthusiasm, create enthusiasm among GPs to want to learn more about women's health. But with, with, the, with the best will in the world, not everybody is wanting to specialise in women's health. It's about identifying those people who do um, and working with them and letting the ones who are not do something they're interested in. That might be diabetes, it might be sports medicine. So just before we move on, I very much feel that there has been a huge amount of awareness raising for the public, which is very good. But there was not the infrastructure in the NHS to deal with the increased demand. So the inevitable outcome is a gap in the market, which is being filled by private providers. And I am passionate that women should not have to pay for menopause management. So if you're living in Liverpool and you go to the GP and you don't feel like you're getting the right answer, that, that GP or somebody from that practice can log on to the Zoom clinic on a Monday and your case can be discussed. So, um, you know, our waiting list is a year in the menopause service at the Women's and we are doing as much as we can to cope with that with the GP population who are working with us. And also we've appointed very recently um, uh, a GP with lots of experience who's also a trainer to try and reduce the waiting list. But it is very, very difficult. You know, the more the more women that become menopausal, the more the waiting list comes up. So my plan is to shift that back to primary care and to support um, primary care to be able to deliver a really good quality service via women's health hubs, which are, you know, they're going to be set up and they're quite advanced in Liverpool so that you can subspecialise what's delivered in a community setting. So there will be menopause specialists in those community settings. 
that's something that's come across a, a, a several sort of questions that women have asked about taking matters into their own hands in terms of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So um, it was somebody, a friend called Sue, actually, who said, ask Dr. Paula this. What can women do themselves from a lifestyle perspective to make things better for themselves during perimenopause and menopause? You know, it's, it's hard. I've said that already. So they may be working. They might be looking after you know their family as well. But I think trying to make some time for themselves and something like I mean, yoga, because you can do it in your own house now. You can do it online, which maybe isn't as nice as doing it in a group setting, but it's more accessible, isn't it? And then deciding what kind of exercise fits with your lifestyle. Walking 150 minutes a week is is an optimal exercise and it's not impossible to do. You're not paying for a gym membership necessarily. And then the other types of exercise which really help are muscle building type exercises. So, you know, it could be squats, it could be bicep curls, but that will um, increase the metabolic rate. So it actually helps with weight loss as well. and you know, it may it may be for some women that they need a bit more support, so they might want to go um to their GP or you know to use things like Slimming World and Weight Watchers. It, it it's very individual how women choose to to manage those lifestyle factors. Okay, so we've got a question from Sarah who says she's interested to know what Dr. Paula would say about an education campaign. When should it start, and at what age should women start getting clued up about the menopause, basically? I was interested when you said that women are coming to you often a bit too soon. And I wonder if that's because I know women who are having Botox in their 20s. And there's that move towards preventative things, isn't there? Even when they're not really age appropriate. And I wonder if that then reach, you know, crosses over with menopause treatment as well. I'm sure that does. I think there's a bit of FOMO going on as well. But um, I think... I think it should be part of normal life. We should just calm down, talk about it like we talk about going to the library or the supermarket. You know, it's a normal thing, isn't it? It doesn't need to be stigmatized in any way, but it also doesn't need to be kind of almost in your face. I think um, ideally it would be talked about in school and that could be primary school or it could be probably better secondary school. Um and, and I think we should talk about everything. We should talk about the expected age of menopause, but how sometimes ovaries fail earlier and talk about symptoms. So, you know, the thing with premature ovarian insufficiency, periods stop, but those women, that population don't always get classical menopausal symptoms like hot flushes, night sweats, etc. And so they don't necessarily present for help because it doesn't seem like a big problem, but it is a big problem because if you... Um, have low low levels of estrogen when you're younger then your bones suffer potentially cardiovascular health will decline Um, and I think just having information about common menopausal symptoms so you know it could be an onset of of migraine it could be um, anxiety it could be brain fog through probably difficulty sleeping but there's so many symptoms that just having it on your radar might mean that women would come for help sooner um, and as I say, you know, within a, within a primary care setting, there are lots of different clinicians who might be available to talk about menopause. It doesn't have to be the GP necessarily. Although I was talking to one of the GPs at lunchtime and we think it would be reasonable for an annual assessment with a GP just to make sure that nothing's being missed. Because 
abnormal bleeding on HRT is not normal. Um, if you're on a bleed-free preparation and you continue to bleed past three to six months, depending on your individual risk factors, and that would be all the things we talked about earlier, it may be important to get checked to make sure it's not something um, that could be managed very successfully as long as it's dealt with early on. How about complementary therapies? Because that's another thing which I think people are a little bit boggled by because there's so many options out there. And you think sometimes you think, well, okay, maybe I don't want to try HRT or maybe I don't want to do something too medical. And this maybe also if people want to avoid the route of antidepressants and they're looking for something that might lift their mood. And I know something I, I read magnesium was very good for mood lifting. But you know what? That's typical. So because I'm saying to you now, I read that and I can't even remember where I read it. I was going to say, where did you read it? Where you was it, Did somebody tell you in the pub? What, you know, I lose track of where I've read everything. And, and then I think, oh, I'll try. There's so many things rattling around in my bathroom cabinet that I've tried for like five days and thought and then just forgotten. And, and I think magnesium was one of them. And there's vitamin D was another one. Do you know why I started to take vitamin D? Because Lorraine Kelly said she did. Well, that's a good thing because all women should take vitamin D in the winter. I think magnesium actually it was in the Sunday papers yesterday and I had myself started taking magnesium because I couldn't sleep. Um, but you don't you don't absorb magnesium very well. So it's not uncommon for it to cause diarrhea. So it's not necessarily money well spent. Yeah. And I mean, nobody's making much of that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just as well, picking that up, are they? <laughs> when you go to a health food shop to buy a supplement, these are unregulated. Um, so things like black cohosh were supported by NICE, um, but black cohosh can be very toxic, it can cause liver failure in extreme um situations. Red clover is a phytoestrogen, it's a weak estrogen, and it's quite good for women that don't want prescribed medication, but women who have hormone dependent cancer, for example, would need to be very careful. Um, and then some women will benefit from sage. And, you know, it's very difficult with with unregulated products, a bit like bioidentical hormones that you get from compounding pharmacists or certain outlets, they're unregulated as well. So the one thing I can say in HRT's favour is that all of the products have been subjected to rigorous randomised controlled trials. They're the gold standard. But those trials were done at specific doses. They weren't done at doses two or three times the upper limit. So that's where I would say be very cautious. If you're using more estrogen, you definitely need to use more progestogen to protect the lining of the, the womb. Um, and then things like acupuncture, they help some women, but they're very difficult to assess using randomized controlled trials because you can't have a placebo. Um, you know, if you're having something puncture your skin, it's to do that whether it's the actual thing or, or a placebo so I think there's there's lots of there's lots of different treatment options I wouldn't um rule out antidepressants they're not first-line treatment for menopause but as I said at the beginning a lot of the patients that we are seeing now are genuinely anxious and a little bit depressed because of all the things the pandemic the economic situation you know, so it's, it's a hard time for people at the moment. And I, I would encourage them not to um, fail to consider the benefits of antidepressants if it's appropriate for them. Um, and yeah, we, we do sometimes use other drugs outside of their license to manage menopausal symptoms. 
one thing I would also like to say is there's new drugs coming to market. We're currently doing a trial um, using women who've had breast cancer who are eligible if they're on tamoxifen or other drugs which um, basically block all the estrogen. So these are neuroendocrine antagonist drugs. They're non-hormonal and they are, well, they seem to be uh, very good at controlling hot flushes and night sweats and if you have those you're less likely to sleep and you're less likely to be able to function so newer things are coming and I don't think anyone should take risks unnecessarily because you know I would say within the next couple of years we'll have that type of medication available. Can I just say men for a moment blokes not entirely blokes but a bit of bloke so it was my husband actually and I said I'm doing this podcast and he said why don't you ask her, her Dr Paula what can be done to help support people who are living with women who are going through perimenopause and menopause. And I mean, he's coming from it from a guy's perspective, but you know, that's children, aunties, uncles, pet, whatever, whoever you're living with who is going through this. And we say going through it because not all women will have a terrible menopause by all means. Some women are absolutely fine with it. But if you are dealing with difficult symptoms, there are people around you that have to deal with you dealing with the difficult symptoms. Should there be done more be done to help the, your support system yeah so I just think the whole education thing it shouldn't just be for girls it should be for both sexes or any sex whatever anyone identifies as and lots of stuff's being done in the workplace now and, and men are invited to those meetings and actually men are men are attending um Cheshire and Merseyside Women's Health and Maternity Partnership we are running a kind of roadshow throughout the region um, and we had our first meeting in the Liverpool Library a couple of weeks ago and we had a few men, less men than women, but at least we had some, some representation from men. And I think men want to understand, don't they? Often they want to be able to um, support their partner and it's important. That's been absolutely fantastic. It's like we've never been away, Dr Paula, like we've never been away. And <laughs> um, that's sadly all we have time for. Um, as I say, we had tons and tons of questions. I hope we've sort of captured a little bit of, of sort of the response that we've had. Um, but I am very glad you could join us to mark International Women's Day with this special episode of the Menopod. Uh, our deep thanks to Dr. Paul Briggs and all those of yourselves who sent in questions. The Menopod is a laudable production, and you can listen to our entire back catalogue. Makes it sound like the Rolling Stones, doesn't it? Uh, wherever you download your podcasts, including. Apple and Spotify. Uh, but for now, Dr. Paula, thank you very much, and don't see you soon. Take care.